Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, where Hartman Rocks in Gunnison is now open and riding really well. And you should come check it out for yourself, especially if you've never ridden Hartman's before. You know, new places, good riding. Do yourself a favor, people. Okay, today on the show, we have our very own David Golay and Noah Bodman talking about modern trends in bikes, including the fact that bike geometry seems to be settling into a new normal. They also talk about the resurgence of high pivot bikes and how all bikes should apparently be sized to fit Noah specifically. I mean, that last thing is a really dumb idea, but this is still a really good conversation between two of my favorite people to talk about bikes with and also to just listen to talk about bikes. And so let's get to it. Well, it's been a while since we kind of had a conversation about the new bikes that are coming out and trends that are going on and with those. And so figured we'd uh, kind of get the gang back together and have... Noah on to talk about what we're seeing with new bikes. So how's it going, Noah? Good, good. Glad to be here. It's it's that time of the year. It's it's new stuff that comes out in the spring that would normally come out at Sea Otter, but Sea Otter is in what, like October now or something? Something like that. Yeah, it's in the fall because so, but COVID. So uh, apparently the companies don't want to wait till October to release their uh, 2021 gear. So here we are. Or 2022, because the yep. bike industry doesn't like numbers. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about and have had a lot of new interesting bikes showing up and we're getting time on a bunch of them, which is sweet. Uh, but one thing that's been really interesting of late is that it sort of seems like, for the most part, with a couple of notable exceptions that we'll talk about in a little bit here, geometry is kind of settling down a little bit. You know, we had this whole period where each time a new bike came out, it was getting longer and lower and slacker and steeper seat tube angles and all the rest. And well, that's still happening to some extent, particularly with bikes that were starting to look a little dated on that front. The bikes that were kind of pushing the bleeding edge of the geometry wars, as it were, sort of seem like as they're getting updates, those updates aren't going further than the prior generations were. Like one of the really obvious examples to me is the Nikolai Geometron series. There's the G16 that came out in something like I think 2015 with a 63-ish head tube angle and huge reach and all the rest. And at that point, it looked really wild. But then, by modern standards, it's still notably aggressive but you know by a much much smaller margin than it was but then i think last year they rolled out the g1 which is sort of the update to that bike which features some additional adjustability to handle different wheel sizes and mullet configurations and that kind of stuff but didn't actually go any farther with the geometry really and you know even some sort of less obvious outliers in terms of like being the most aggressive out there bikes are also just kind of all settling into what is uh you know there's a bit of a range still of course but like the there's a window that we're all seemingly kind of settling down into but there hasn't been a lot of 
interest seemingly in pushing that even farther for the most part. Yeah, it almost feels like not only are we not pushing it further, but some companies, it feels like they're pulling back a little bit and their geometry numbers have almost gotten a little less extreme. You know, I think something like the specialized Stump Jumper Evo is a good example where, you know, they originally came out with that bike in an aluminum only version. What was that? Maybe three, four years ago now. And that thing, when it came out, was very progressive, super low bottom bracket, uh, pretty slack for the kind of trail bike that it was. And these days, I think they still make the bike and it's still or, or they still essentially make that bike. And it's it's now one of the main bikes in their product line, but it's uh, a little less extreme in their numbers. I think they kind of they they pushed the limits, found where the limit was and then pulled it back to what they felt actually worked well. And I think a lot of brands are in that same boat, you know, like Transition is another one where they kind of they they pushed the uh, long reach, the slack head angle, the short offset fork. And and they're still basically doing that, but they're not they're not way out at the limits of what seems reasonable on those geo numbers. You know, if you look at their you know, if you look at a size medium transition on almost any of their models, they're they're far from the most uh, long and slack as far as even the larger companies go. So, yeah, I think that's that's kind of interesting that we're seeing more of these companies settling in on a not that extreme geometry compared to what we were looking at maybe three years ago. And maybe more of the companies, like you were saying, they're they're looking at some adjustability for wheel sizes and doing mullet setups and, you know, some other tweaks that we'll get into here. But, uh, you know, the reach numbers and the bottom bracket heights and the head tube angles are are pretty consistent these days. Yeah, it's all kind of seemingly calming down a little bit. And one thing that I think is interesting about it, too, is that, you know, we're talking so far, we've been talking largely about sort of trail and enduro bikes. But something I was thinking about recently is that downhill bikes have actually, apart from the reaches getting tremendously longer, have actually changed in geometry very little in the last even 10 years plus. And it's sort of been the case that more pedally bikes have kind of converged to not quite all the way to it, but something much closer to what has sort of been the normal DH bike geometry for a while, with the obvious exception that they make much steeper seat tubes because no one cares about getting a, you know, full height pedaling on their DH bike. But otherwise, you know, head tube angles and chainstay lengths and stuff have for enduro bikes have kind of just gotten to quite close to DH bike numbers. And, you know, it just took the industry way longer to figure out that that actually worked okay for a bike that you did want to pedal as well. But it was much better settled on for DH bikes for quite a long time. The example that I pulled up in sort of thinking about this and doing research for this episode was the, um, you know, comparing the just released 2022 Trek session, which we also just received yesterday. I'll be spending some time on that soon. I'm pretty excited about it. But comparing that to the Turner DHR from 2010, more than 10 years ago, they've got exactly the same head tube angle at 63 degrees. The chainstay length is within three millimeters of them each other for the medium size session, which has 
differing chain stay length by size, which we'll get into more in a little bit here. Bottom bracket heights similar, and in fact, the older Turner is actually seven millimeters lower than the session, even in the low position for the session. But then the, the massive, massive difference is in the reach. The uh, even a size large DHR had a four oh nine millimeter reach, whereas the medium sessions at four sixty five. So there's a Huge difference there, but nothing else actually changed very much. I mean, obviously, there's a wheel size difference too. The Turner was from when 26 inch wheels were just the wheel size, and the Sessions now either 27.5 mullet or 29, depending how you want to configure it. But uh, it's just interesting that we were there with DH bikes apart from the reaches, but then it took a long time for people to realize that, oh, you can just do that on a bike you want to pedal too. Yeah, getting ready for this episode, I, I saw your notes on that and it, it kind of piqued my curiosity. So I, I went down a, a minor internet Googling rabbit hole on DH bike geometries and, and I ended up uh, pulling up geometries for a specialized demo just because that the specialized demo has been in their lineup with that name more or less for a pretty long time. I think 2003, I believe, was the first demo. And so I, I pulled up geometry for a 2003 demo, a 2011 demo. So the 2003 was a demo nine. 2011 was a demo eight. 2015 was a demo eight. And then a 2021 demo race. And just did a medium in all of them, except for 2021, a medium turns into a, I call it a size three, a medium. And yeah, over all those years, over, what is that, 18 years, the head tube angle fluctuated back and forth a little bit, but it was within a degree the whole time. Bottom bracket height fluctuated a little bit, but not that much. The old Demo 9 was pretty high, but it also had more travel, so that makes sense. It's funny, in... 2003, I couldn't find a reach number for the Demo 9. Like, that's not, it wasn't a measurement that anybody looked at back then. And so you could only find the effective top tube. For 2021, they don't even list the effective top tube. Nobody cares about effective top tube on a downhill bike. But it was interesting the the one number that just consistently changed and grew every single year was the wheelbase. Wheelbase got longer every year. And it went from the the 2003 demo had in a size medium had a 1,183 millimeter wheelbase, and the 2021 demo race 29 inch wheel in a size three had a 1269 wheelbase. So that's what three inches longer, something like that, give or take. Yeah, it's a lot. And in some ways, that's like a not terrible proxy for reach, right? Given that you have relatively similar head tube angles and chainstay lengths. Yeah. And the chainstay actually, the chainstay on the demo stayed pretty similar up until pretty recently. It was right around 430, 420 to 430 throughout most of the demo's time. And then it bumped up on the new 2021 uh, in the 29-inch version. It's 448. But it is shorter, I believe, on the 27.5 version. So, you know, even that hasn't changed that that much if you kind of keep the wheel sizes closer. Right. Oh, and the demo sort of did historically have a fairly short chainstay length for a DH bike for a lot of that run, too. That, that was a little bit outside of what was kind of typical for a lot of that time period. Thinking about this whole premise that you, you brought up originally, that DH bikes have gone 
quite a long time without having this massive change. You know, the wheel sizes have gotten bigger and the reaches have gotten longer, but the rest of the geo numbers really haven't changed that that much. Whereas trail bikes, especially in the last, say, six or seven years, have gone through a massive change where they've gotten much slacker, lower, longer. And so we've seen way more of a change with the trail bikes. And you know, I was trying to come up with a reason for that. And, you know, you can say, well, you know, the, the bike industry just wasn't forward thinking enough. Or you can say that consumers weren't ready. They weren't ready to embrace these kind of bikes because, you know, Nikolai and and uh, some of the a, a couple of those other European brands have been doing pretty long slack progressive bikes for a while now. And and they did okay, but you know they weren't they weren't making their millions. But it really seems to me the difference is if you go back fifteen years ago, the the trails that we were riding, the non lift serve trails, just the regular pedal bike trails that we were on, they kind of sucked. Like there's a lot of just janky old hiking trails with awkward switchbacks. The the era of bike specific trails hadn't really arrived yet. And so, you know, I think back to the kind of trails that I was riding in 2002. And for the most part, uh, they didn't work real well for a long slack you know, slow handling bike. We didn't have berms on every corner and nicely built jumps. And the trails were the same trails that had been there before mountain bikes were even invented. Uh, you know, these were old hiking trails for the most part. And so, uh, and, and clearly there were exceptions to that. But, you know, I think most of the trails that most places were riding were just not great trails for bikes. And so it maybe made more sense to have a bike with a shorter wheelbase and a steeper head angle and a little bit sharper steering because, you know, you never really got going more than like eight miles an hour on a lot of these trails. But now, you know, in the in the age of of flow trails and, you know, we've got these downhill pump tracks all over the place and and a lot of trails that used to be hiking trails. They've kind of been massaged and and as the mountain bike user group has grown and bike clubs are doing more work on a lot of these trails and making them ride better, then, yeah, you can go faster and hold more speed and the uh you know the new geometries make more sense that's the best idea i can come up with for why it took so long for trail bikes to kind of to go through the shift that they did i think that makes sense on a bunch of levels though i do kind of wonder to what extent that's a sort of chicken and egg problem where <laughs> you know like what you said all makes sense but at the same time i think there's also sort of a case to be made that we just started building trails differently because the bikes got more capable of going real fast. And, you know, those two things sort of moved forward in tandem, I guess, is probably really the right answer for it. And I do think that on trail bikes in particular, too, in, in no small part, kind of getting it all to work, come together and 
work right with what we sort of view as modern geometry was dependent on figuring out a bunch of things in conjunction with each other, right? Like you kind of needed steeper seat tube angles and longer reaches to go together on a trail bike without making the effective top tube either tiny or gigantic, depending which way you're going, right? Like if you do a, you want to make the reach longer, you then need to make the seat tube angle steeper to not make the effective top tube huge when you're seated and pedaling. Or conversely, if you want to make the uh, seat tube angle steep, you then need to stretch out the reach a fair bit too in order to get the uh, effective top tube to not be tiny on a given size. And then as the wheelbase grows longer for making the reach longer and so on, it starts to make sense to inch the head tube angle slacker and the chain stays longer too because you've got more room to kind of move around on the bike and stay balanced between the wheels and all of these things kind of it's sort of an additive thing where you need to have a bunch of elements coming together in order for the bike to work right. You can't just do take your 2005 specialized Enduro or whatever to pick a random example and make the seat tube angle four degrees steeper and have made a, a totally positive step forward, right? Like it took figuring out a bunch of things sort of in conjunction for it to all come together. And and not a small part of that is I think the bike buying public needed to come to grips with the fact that if they wanted a 160 or 170 mil travel bike that was going to ride well and hold up that, yeah, like it's probably going to weigh like 33, 34 pounds uh, unless you get into the $10,000 models. And, you know, that was a big shift in in whatever, let's say 2012 if you bought a fairly high-end bike, uh, like a fairly high-end trail bike, it was, you know, it was pretty reasonable for it to be like a 28-pound bike, something like that. Like, that wasn't uncommon. And yeah, like 28-pound aggressive trail bikes, I'm not going to say they don't exist, but they're sure not common, and they're definitely expensive. You know, we've had... As much as people like to hate on how terrible tire technology is these days, like, man, it's gotten a lot better. You know, we're, we're running tubeless tires that actually stay on the rim and you can buy a tire with a casing that'll more or less hold up to a fair amount of abuse. And that didn't really exist 10 years ago. And I mean, the frames themselves, like, yeah, go stick a 64 degree head angle on some bike from 10 years ago and put 170 mil travel Zeb or 38 on it, that head tube is going to last like three days. Like you're going to shear that thing off so fast uh, because the frames just weren't built to take that kind of abuse. And there was a period there where, uh, you know, we kind of saw a lot of frames breaking uh, where I think the frame manufacturers were really wrestling with the fact that on one hand, people were looking for these sub 30 pound bikes, but on the other hand, people didn't want their frame to snap in half. And it took a little bit for the people paying money for these bikes to come to grips with the fact that like, yeah, they're, they're going to have to pedal that 33 or 34 pound bike uphill. And that's just kind of the way it's going to be. Yeah, that's a good point. I think you're right that kind of the weight weenieism has declined a little bit as people have realized that 
a couple extra pounds is okay to have a bike that actually works way better. And certainly I broke quite a few frames in the 2000s and early 2010s, but it's been a while since I've broken one now. And I don't know, maybe chalk some of that up to doing less really stupid free ride hucks to flat kind of stuff. But a big part of it is just that bikes are built way better now. They, yeah. They're a little heavier in a lot of cases, but with uh, some pretty real improvements coming with that. So, yeah, I think you're right about all that. So, this is a total side note, but it's kind of relevant. I don't know if you follow the Instagram account, Vintage Downhill. Uh, it's one of my favorite Instagram accounts, and it's just all these uh, you know, clips and some, some video pictures, newspaper clippings, magazine clippings of just like mostly old downhill bikes, but a lot of cool old, like kind of retro bikes. And he had one on there the other day. It's a 1991 Boulder Bicycles uh, Kamikaze. And so it's like this, I think, one off bike that they built for the Kamikaze. And it's got like a an RS1, like the original RockShox RS1 on it and uh, an action tech rear suspension. But so they don't they don't give reach numbers because you know nobody cared about reach back then right no one had figured that concept out yet yeah it had a 31 inch long top tube and a 52 inch wheelbase oh wow okay so that's like uh you know the effective top tube uh, just because i have them in front of me on the 2021 demo in a size medium the effective top tube uh, or no, that, that's the one where they don't give us the top tube. So 2015 demo with had an effective top tube of 588, 588 millimeters. This thing has an effective top tube of almost 800. Uh, <laughs> so like it's just comically long. Actually, has a pretty steep seat tube ankle. Yeah, it does. It is full suspension. I mean, at a guess, it maybe has like. 40 or 50 millimeters of travel, something like that. You know, this is 30 years ago. Uh, somebody, I think they give his name there, Rich Williams, uh, figured out that, yeah, like if you're going to go really fast down the kamikaze, stretching out the wheelbase really, really long uh, actually makes a ton of sense. So these aren't actually new ideas. It just took a long time for the broader public to embrace them. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. I haven't seen that, but I'll have to go check it out. That sounds pretty cool. So one thing that we were thinking about in, in prepping for this that is pretty new is that there are a ton more companies that are doing variable chainstay length by sizing now. Forbidden's been doing it with the Druid and Dreadnought, Privateer with the 141 and 161, the new Trek Session. Santa Cruz is doing it now. You, Norco's jumped on that train with a whole bunch of their bikes and so on. I think Norco's actually, I, I want to say they're one of the first ones to have done it as a major manufacturer. They were doing it. They were. Yeah, they were really early. Yeah, I think at, at least five or six years that they've been doing it. Yeah, they've been, they've been they were ahead of the curve on that one for sure. You know, it's, it's a funny thing, right? We've talked about this a bit before on various places on Blister and a couple of the podcast episodes, but you know, it's hard for any one person to evaluate the effect of changing chainstay size across sizes, right? Like you put me on three different sizes of the same bike and I'm not going to have anything very useful to say because one of them is almost certainly just going to fit way better than the other two. And there, you know, there's too many variables to sort of counteract. But from, you know, all of the different bikes that I am testing and spending time on things with kind of, I guess you can call it sort of different ratios of chainstay length to overall wheelbase, the ways that that impacts the handling 
I think do feel pretty real. And it makes a ton of sense that as you're making the front center longer, if you want to maintain a relatively similar handling balance, at least making the chain stays longer to compensate, at least in my head, makes a ton of sense. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the sort of overall concept. I mean, I think it makes a ton of sense. Like you said, uh, you know, I can try all these different bikes, but at the end of the day, I remain the same size. So these companies changing their change day lengths, it's really hard for me to evaluate on the same bike whether it's actually a good thing. And I mean, personally, I'm torn. Just like I've got bikes in my garage right now with chain stays, uh, all, all two niners, uh, with chain stay lengths that range from like, 425 up to like 450. So like a 25 millimeter uh, change in chain stay length, which as far as it goes, like that's that's kind of the full spread. That's a big range. And uh, clearly they ride differently. I, I don't know, like, I guess I have my preferences, but I also totally get how somebody would like a bike at either end of that spectrum. So it's it's sort of a personal preference thing and I feel like like man ever since I was reading mountain bike action in the 90s people have been bickering over chainstay length and whether shorter or longer is better. Back then I felt like it was much more about how the bike climbed and uh, you know how basically how far behind you you wanted the wheel um you know there's the balance of maintaining traction versus uh, not wheeling out and looping out on a steep climb. These days, I feel like the conversation is a little more about how the bike corners and and how kind of neutral and centered you feel on a bike that has a, an extended rear end, but potentially is still a short uh, or sorry, an extended front end, but potentially still a short rear end. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the short change days are fun. Like, ah, the bike manual's all over the place, and it's like super easy to kind of just wheelie it around and pop the front wheel over stuff. But then the long change days just make for a super stable bike that'll just kind of rally through stuff and be unperturbed. And like, I don't know which one of those is better. Like, well, I guess it depends on you and it depends on your trails, and they're different. Totally agree on that. Like, certainly there is no single objective answer to what is the right chain stay length. But I guess my, my point is more like, I think that if you have a given model of bike where you have a say you have, you know, this is like we, we want this model of bike to handle like X, Y, Z, some set of criteria for that. I think it does make sense to in order for the kind of balance of weight between the wheels to feel more consistent and have the bike handle similarly across the range of three, four, five, however many sizes it may be, giving those different sizes of bikes different chainstay lengths so that they are more similar to each other checks out to me. And there is still, of course, plenty of room for debate, like, you know, what the kind of relative range ought to be, depending what you want the bike to do. Like you said, there's definitely not a correct chainstay length, but or correct ratio of chainstay length to wheelbase or anything like that. You know, it's it's a there is definitely a, a heavy degree of personal preference there also. But if you sort of assume that you want a specific model of bike to do a set of things, then I think giving all of them the same chainstay length doesn't make sense. I agree. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, again, it's it's hard for me to evaluate 
kind of how that sorts out. And I guess my only worry there as someone who personally tends to prefer change days that are a little bit on the longer side, but also as someone who's not particularly tall, like I usually will ride a medium or maybe a large. I just don't want it to be the situation where I'm always resigned to have moderately short change day lengths because I'm not I'm not six foot three. And so let that be a note to all the companies that are uh, keeping tabs on this podcast that uh, when you're designing your frames, you shouldn't make them all with short chain state lengths. And as long as I'm on the topic, as long as I'm on my soapbox, as a five foot nine person, I am I am the epitome of average American male. And so all these companies keep making their medium a little too small for me and their large a little too big for me. I'm at the top of the bell curve. Make a bike for me. I, I am. Everybody is like me. I'm average. <laughs> make make your reach measurement fit five nine. Not <laughs> like don't have that be your sizing break. Anyways, slight digression there. But every time I try to buy a bike, I'm like, man, I am right in between these two sizes. <sighs> At six feet tall, I sometimes run into that between the large and XL too. It's just it's the same thing, but up a size. But I'm average. I should be the one they're building bikes for. You're t- you're tall, so you know, screw you. But <laughs> right, agreed that all bikes should fit Noah perfectly. <laughs> and uh, moving on. <laughs> one thing that I do think is interesting too with the uh, variable chain state length bikes, though, is that there's cl- not clear consensus from the companies that are doing it on how to do it. So there are two different things going on here. One, you've got just physically how they actually make the frames. So most of the companies that are doing variable chain state length are doing it by essentially just moving the bottom bracket relative to all the pivot points on the front triangle. So they, they it's physically the same rear triangle, but then where the bottom bracket falls relative to it moves. Like Forbidden, Norco, Trek, I think Santa Cruz and the bikes that are doing it are going that route. But then you've got some companies like Privateer and I'm sure some others that I'm not thinking of right now that actually make different chain stays and seat stays, different rear ends for the different sizes, which is interesting because that does give you the option of theoretically being able to mix and match if you wanted to. So for you know Noah, who needs his long chain stay size medium bike, you could theoretically get a, I don't know, say a 161 and put the size large chain stays on it if you wanted to make it longer. But but I'm not sure that's actually I mean, like, yes, physically, you could bolt those chain stays to that bike. But I think my my pseudo engineering brain here says that, you know, if you're going to put a longer chain stay on, then the pivot locations are going to have to change slightly on the front triangle to keep the kinematics the same on the suspension, because if you put a longer chain stay on, then it's going to change your leverage ratios and this, that and the other thing on the shocks. So you're going to have to presumably the front triangle pivot locations are going to have to match the chain stays and seat stays that you're putting on the back of the bike, which is why I think most of the companies, like you said, they're they're basically just moving the bottom bracket because every different size bike 
already has a different front triangle. So it's easy, you know, they move the bottom bracket a little bit to effectively make the rear end longer, but then they also can move the shock mounting location. They can uh, tweak the seat tube, uh, you know, do all the little changes so that the geometry still makes sense. You know, they're not just like moving the bottom bracket whole five millimeters forward and calling it good without doing any other changes. Like the the whole front triangle is going to be built around that idea. So yeah, I, I I don't know. This gets complicated, but I think it's worth pointing out that a company like Privateer that pretty much just deals in aluminum, like this is an upside of aluminum. They can like the difference adding five millimeters to a chainstay is the difference of like cutting a piece of tubing five millimeters longer and you know doing a little tweak on the miters for the welding. But it's it's not a whole different hundred thousand dollar carbon mold that they have to have but and that comes back to the you know companies like norco you know some of those other companies that are doing carbon frames with adjustable chainstay length they're only changing the front triangle because they already have to have a different mold for every size so it's not a big deal to move that bottom bracket i i think more and more companies are going back and looking at the advantages of aluminum privateer being a really good example like yeah we can do some cool things with our bikes in terms of tweaking geometry and offering some different well different chainstay lengths in this case that it's pretty doable and they and cost effective with an aluminum bike where it just would be really difficult and kind of not cost effective with a carbon bike and so I I kind of feel like we might see more of that, more companies going back to offering more aluminum models. Like we saw Ibis doing the the Ritmo AF in aluminum, where it's like, yeah, here's this cool bike that we can put out. And if we do it in aluminum, then we can offer it at a competitive price point. And, and it turned out to be pretty popular for them. I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of that. Yeah, and Trek with the new Sessions is another great example, too. They were one of the very first companies to have a carbon DH bike out. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see a carbon version of it at some point in the future. Uh, but in the short term, like, yeah, aluminum. And and I think that's going to be a popular bike. Uh, I'm really interested to, to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, really excited to get out on it. Looks quite interesting in a bunch of ways. So, well, speaking of things that are relevant to that track session, too, it uh, another thing that's really happening in a big way right now is that uh, high pivot bikes are really having kind of a moment again. And it was interesting too, because that's another thing where DH bikes, there were quite a few high pivot DH bikes in the kind of mid two thousands and stuff. Trek had the diesel in the early two thousands and then the session 10 and I think 2006, something like that. They did some high pivot stuff. There are a whole bunch of other companies doing it as well. And kind of faded out of prominence for a bit. And now they're coming back in a big way. And also now are trickling down to way more non-DH bikes, too. You've got Forbidden and Deviate and Norco and uh, a bunch more companies who have stuff on the way that we can't talk about quite yet. Doing high pivot, enduro, and sort of free ride kind of bikes in the case of that Norco Shore. And then, again, the newest Trek Session has gone back to being a high pivot bike after a pretty lengthy hiatus from doing that for for track one thing i've been thinking about in relation to that is trying to figure out if i think that some of the kind of return to high pivot bikes is down to the more modern 
much longer wheelbase geometry kind of working better with a high pivot design where you have the chainstays basically just only getting longer as the suspension cycles, whereas on most lower pivot bikes, they uh, the wheel swings back around and chainstays start getting shorter after not all that much suspension travel. And I'm thinking particularly into riding an early Canfield Jedi that I spent some time on where that was a early high pivot DH bike, but one that was still from the days when the reaches were really short and therefore the wheelbase wasn't all that big. And one of the things that I really remember from that was that it did some stuff really well, including just kind of mowing down choppy square edged hits. But it also felt like there was such a huge kind of variation in how the handling felt, depending on where the rear wheel happened to be in the travel, just because the wheelbase changed so much. And it kind of felt like it would hang up on things in some situations, like, like not on a bump as much, but more if you as you're sort of compressing the suspension through a corner or something, preloading it, the wheelbase would grow and your balance would shift on the bike in a way that was at times kind of unsettling. And I don't have a clear answer on this, but it, the thought has occurred to me that maybe having much, much longer wheelbases and therefore having the kind of overall percentage change in wheelbase be so much smaller has helped facilitate that. Or, I mean, it also could sort of be the case that, you know, people have been devoting a lot of their resources and efforts to fine tuning geometry of late. And now that that's settling down, it's sort of just given bike designers bandwidth to look at other stuff and think about high pivot bikes again and further that development. And I don't know, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are, Noah. Yeah, I, well, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned the Canfield Jedi because that uh, I had the the last iteration of the Jedi. So it was, a I want to say, a 2015 or 2016 model uh, before they discontinued that. And yeah, my my take on that bike is exactly the same as yours. It had, I want to say something like 60 millimeters of rearward travel as the suspension compressed. And really, if you maxed, if you mapped out the axle paths, the rear wheel followed almost the same trajectory as the front wheel. So you've got your front wheel uh, on a on a traditional fork with a, I think that bike had like a 62 degree head angle so that front wheel as the fork compresses is moving backwards at that 62 degree angle. And the rear axle path really mirrored that uh, 62 degree angle pretty well, actually. So really as the suspension compressed, if you just stood in the middle of the bike and, and, and pumped it, then the wheelbase stayed about the same. The both wheels kind of went backwards, uh, roughly the same amount. Whereas if you map out the axle path on almost any other downhill bike, uh, let's just say a, a demo from the same era, uh, a specialized demo, that has the, the axle path goes kind of vertical and then it swings forward. So the wheelbase the wheelbase gets shorter partly by virtue of the front wheel going back and partly by virtue of the rear wheel going forward, actually. So academically, it feels like the Canfield makes sense. Like, yeah, your wheelbase stays the same and both your wheelbase, both of your wheels are moving through their suspension travel kind of on the same plane. And 
exactly like you said, if you point that thing in a straight line down some mess of root and rocks and you just let go of the brakes, it's incredible. Like it just motors through everything. And and that is the upside of that high pivot design, that rear that rearward axle path is that you hit square edged hits and the wheel just gets out of the way. One of the downsides that I do find is that, yeah, the rear wheel gets out of the way. It moves rearward. But then as the suspension returns, that wheel is coming back forward. And so if you hit repeated bumps kind of in that line, then instead of your wheel going kind of vertically up and down, it's going backwards and forwards. And so it sometimes feels like it sort of hacks into the face of something as the wheel is returning back forward. The long and short of that is I put I put a lot of dents in that rim. It, it feels somewhat abusive. But then, yeah, r- really, that, that wasn't in and of itself a problem other than <laughs> I had to straighten a lot of wheels. But uh, but just in terms of riding, it was more yeah. In corners, you're you're so used to a bike that gets shorter as you compress into a corner. And here's a bike that doesn't actually get longer, but it does not get shorter. It sort of stays the same. And I remember when I got that Jedi, I was super excited. It was this cool new bike. It was shiny and everything. And I just went up to some of our local trails. And these are trails that I know like the back of my hand. I've ridden it a million times. And I went into the very first corner and leaned into it. And the bike did nothing. It just went straight. I, like, I just went right off the outside of the corner. And it was like, oh, that that showed me very quickly that I needed to corner that bike a bit differently. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Like I got used to it. I could make the bike go around a corner just fine once I became accustomed to it, but it always seemed like it took a bit more work to make it go around corners. And that is, it was never a bike that seemed like, it was never the bike that I wanted for a tight, twisty trail. Like it was always going to be better in a straight line. And and sort of along that same note, I found that it was a bike that uh, it really didn't want to pop off of things. If it was like, oh, there's this little rock in the trail and I can pop off of that and clear over this route. That didn't work that well because the you'd, you'd pump into it and go to pop off this rock and the rear wheel would kind of shoot out from underneath you off the back and I'd end up just sort of smashing through the whole thing, uh, which worked great. I mean, the bike was incredibly good at smashing through things. It just wasn't really what I intended to do. And so I haven't had a chance to ride any of these new kind of trail bike high pivot trail bikes. But that's what I wonder for those, you know, with with a downhill bike. Yeah, maybe I'm a little more inclined to just leave the bike on the ground and let it smash through things with a trail bike. You know, I kind of want to pop off of stuff and and play around on the bike. And I I'm curious to see if those bikes are not as good at that. Yeah, same. I'm in the same boat. I've ridden a couple of high pivot DH bikes and obviously have this track session sitting in my garage right now that I'm very excited to get out on, but I haven't yet ridden a high pivot trail bike either. We're uh, working on getting a couple things in. Hopefully some stuff comes together there and we'll change that real soon. But yeah, I, I have that thought as well. Um, and it is probably worth noting too, that most high pivot bikes out there don't have as much rearward travel as that Jedi did. You know, it's rear suspension moves much more rearward than it does on 
conventional bikes, but not to nearly the same degree as the Jedi. And one of the things that I am really interested in sort of sussing out as we get some time on some of these high pivot trail and enduro bikes is one, like you said, how do they feel in terms of being able to pop off stuff and that kind of thing? And then also just who do they actually make sense for? Is this something that is going to work really well for people who are pretty good, pretty aggressive riders who are just trying to go a million miles an hour through everything all the time? Or is this the sort of thing where actually some less aggressive, less experienced riders are also going to see some real benefits just in that the bike tracks better and is potentially smoother and absorbs bumps better? Is that going to work for those people too? Or are kind of the downsides in terms of some nimbleness and that kind of thing going to be great enough that you need a pretty aggressive touch to make it all come together? And I just at this point don't know what the answer is, but I'm very curious to find out. Definitely, definitely curious. But ultimately, for me, the real question in my brain is how do they pedal? How much drag is there? Has anybody managed to make an idler setup that drags so little that I am willing to pedal it uphill for extended periods of time? Because, you know, the whole rear root axle path and how the suspension works, like, yeah, there's. There are situations where it's better. There are situations where it's worse. Worse, and ultimately that just comes down to like, what do your trails look like? How do you prefer to ride? And you know, you can get used to a suspension design and and sort of ride to its strengths. But at the end of the day, if if it's got an idler pulley that adds like five percent drag, then that kind of means that it's like a shuttle bike that I'll do very short climbs with. But I'm not gonna pedal it around like I would uh, a, a non-high pivot, non-idler pulley bike. You know, I keep thinking back to my my very short-lived stint with uh, the old SRAM Hammerschmidt cranks that had uh, internal gearing in them. So the, the granny ring, it, it, it had two gears built into the cranks, for those that are un- unfamiliar with it. The granny ring well it only had one ring but there was a planetary gear in there so that ring could uh rotate at two different speeds so you effectively had two chain rings the smaller chain ring was was the native gear so it didn't have any drag the planetary gears weren't engaged and then the bigger ring the bigger effective ring had the gearing and so it would spin at like the equivalent of a 34 tooth chain ring, something like that. And I found that the drag with that planetary gear made that crank set just unrideable. Like I hated it. I hated it so much. I got rid of it as quickly as I could uh, because I wasn't willing to put up. I I think that thing had like a 7% or 9% drag with that planetary gear. And it was super noticeable and it made me just dislike using it. And to a lesser extent, I found the same thing with the pinion gearbox. I did a review on a zeroed uh, Tanihua uh, a few years ago that um, super interesting bike and had some things that it did incredibly well. But, you know, it's built around this 12 speed internal gearbox, which is really cool. Uh, but there was some drag in that gearbox, and it wasn't nearly as bad as the Hammerschmidt, but it was noticeable. 
and it again made me not super excited to pedal that bike uphill for really really long periods of time and then I did have that Canfield Jedi that just had an idler pulley. It's you know no fancy gearing in there. It's just it's just a titanium cog on a nice bearing, and it runs pretty smooth and it's quiet and it keeps the chain on. But there was a bit of drag in there, and uh, for many many other reasons, I was not about to ride that Jedi uphill for extended periods of time. But yeah, thinking back on it, like eh, there was a bit of drag in that idler which on a downhill bike didn't matter to me at all because I wasn't pedaling it uphill or really even pedaling it on flat ground. And so for lift serve purposes, totally fine. Totally happy with the idler. Uh, for a trail bike, uh, we'll see. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to see if anybody has made an idler, idler that runs so smoothly that it doesn't bother me. Because, uh, maybe I'm just a delicate flower on this. I'm fussy about any little bit of resistance, these little legs, you know, they've only got so much power. If, if you start taking watts away from me, I, I don't have watts to spare. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and like we talked about last time you were on too, I think the line was babies make you slow. So you've got yeah. two disadvantages working against you here. Oh man, do they ever. <laughs> so yeah, I'm still slow, uh, getting slower by the day. So yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm curious to see how those bikes ride. Looking forward to getting on one uh, at some point here. Yeah, me too. We're working on some things on that front, and we'll hopefully have a lot more to say about it soon. So I think with that, that's about what we had to talk about today. And uh, good talking to you with you as always, Noah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Good to chat. Well, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to David and Noah for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Gear 30 podcast where, if you like, you get to hear Luke Coppa and me talk about our Mount Rushmores of ski suspension. So yeah, there's actually quite a bit of overlap with mountain biking stuff and mountain bike suspension, so check it out. All right, everybody, take care. Talk to you soon. <laughs>